Chapter Five of Grimm: The Story of a Pike. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rebecca Shertuti. Grimm: The Story of a Pike by Sven Fleuron. Translated by J. Muir. Chapter Five, The Pearly Fish. Between a cloudy sky and rough water, the wind tore through reeds and rushes. Grim was lurking at the edge of the bottom vegetation. She had not seen fish food since the previous evening. There is a splash in front of her. A broad foot is pushed obliquely down into the water. And forces a large, heavy swimming bird past her. A little later, there is a sudden gleam. A small fugitive of a fish darts past as though taking advantage of the wake of the big bird from one reedy shelter to another. Grim has already eaten so many bleak and roach that they are beginning to be everyday fare, and now there goes a new kind of food. A fish that shines all red and green and blue and black with large glittering beady eyes. At a distance, she follows the titbit that swims through the water like no other fish, turning incessantly round and round on its own axis. How hard it works! There is a bright starry light all round it, and its tail fin quivers behind in a long thick trail. She cannot look at it unmoved. After it, say her eyes. After it, echoes her empty stomach. She does not succeed in seizing it across as she generally does, but has to swim up and swallow it from behind in one mouthful. It is a curiously sharp-spined little fish. Now that she has it in her mouth, it is not nearly so tempting to her palate as it was before her eyes. Well, she has taken the trouble to catch it, so down it shall go. She cannot get it to move in her mouth; it will not stir. She takes a firmer hold, turns with it, and hastens back into her hiding place. Then it begins to bite her in the throat, and now. She becomes quite uneasy. Her throat suddenly tries to go the opposite way to her tail. What can be the matter? She forcibly sets her teeth into her refractory captive, when suddenly she is pulled over. How strange! The simple little pearly fish takes the form of a master and drags her after it through the water. No matter how much she tries to back. No matter what powerful stroke she makes to force it to obey her will, she is obliged to yield and go with it. Her brain is bursting; she cannot comprehend this powerlessness. The fish is in her mouth and on its way down her throat, and yet it is dragging her along with it. No, no, and she sets to work and lashes the water into foam with her tail. But the little pearly fish is inexorable; it is too strong for her. There must be some strange witchcraft about it all. Instead of her swimming away with it, 
here it goes swimming away with her and on they go nearer and nearer up towards the light and the surface which she instinctively shuns all at once the pearly fish leaps into the air with her she wants to let go to spit it out but she is too late for the moment she is not quite conscious her eyes ache she feels as if they would jump out of her head her sight is gone and a bright red mist surrounds her she tries to swim but cannot get her balance she tries to strike with her tail in order to escape but the water round her offers no resistance a suffocating feeling seems suddenly to contract her gills she cannot open them far enough she opens her mouth to let water in but only swallows dry wind the next moment she is lying floundering in a boat and then a human hand takes her up a pickerel undersized mutters the angler and he carefully takes out the revolving bait and weighs the fish in his hand alas not even a miserable two pounds he takes out his sheath-knife and marks her dorsal fin and then in the hope of finding favour with the gods on account of his magnanimity and catching the fish again at some future time he tosses her over the side of the boat and grim is given back to life it was much the same feeling as when she was ejected from the heron's throat her intestines seemed bursting and her breath to be leaving her then she reaches the water where she lies floating on her side and slowly wakens as though from a long fit of unconsciousness and in a trice she has disappeared into the depths her suspicion was aroused the world was full of villainies more than those that she herself committed twilight was falling the sun's fiery columns that stood obliquely over the lake suddenly separated and flowed out their glowing fragments lying like burning oil upon the surface of the water then they were gradually extinguished the darkness of evening shed its deep blue tones over them long and black the shadows crept out from the banks the little fish made their way in to the shelter of the reeds and the pursuing pike went to rest and while the surface still sparkled with a peculiar mother-of-pearl brilliancy the darkness of night already brooded closely beneath the water as quietly as a snail a little crayfish was crawling over the bottom but it was more watchful than a polecat and listened and felt its way carefully it came out from the rocky reef and was now on its way over the sandy plain into the nearest bank nipper was a robber encased in coat of mail he spared nothing that he thought he was big enough to overcome a sharp serrated dagger projected above his jaws and the pincers of his large claws were half open ready to fasten upon the unwary prey he was a young crayfish no longer than the span of a child's hand and with a tail no broader than a finger his eyes were stalked and the long wide straddling feelers carefully searched the bottom for more than a body's length in advance 
the half-closed claws scraped over rocks and water-lily roots in their efforts to drag the mailed body along suddenly there was a shock to his feelers nipper suspected danger and struck with his tail and at once beginning to go backwards he hastily with his front claws stirred up a cloud of mud all round him step by step long and rapid he hastened without changing his direction back through the water it was only a false alarm however there is no otter or water rat its worst enemies close to the tips of its claws it might take things quietly and safely set about its search for nocturnal prey again it stopped beating the water with its tail and with extended claws and tail outspread it let itself sink slowly through the water sedately and circumspectly and with extreme caution he felt his way before advancing over the bottom of the lake on his clawed legs nipper was descended from an old backslider that had been a monster of the order of decapoda and had at last become so fat and heavy that she could hardly swim and preferred to crawl about like the rest of her species she had espoused a new male crayfish every other year the wedding generally took place in november when out-of-door pleasures were few and everything even the water was cold and grey when the happy honeymoon was over she always suddenly broke off all relations with her spouse and withdrew into one of the roomiest of the numerous deep dark basement flats through the winter waiting for the sun and the white water-lilies to bring out her little children and they came next summer a swarm of little creatures crept out of the eggs that adhered in scores to her tail from their birth they had tiny claws a tiny rostrum and tiny feelers and they were all an exact copy of him holding fast with one claw to their mother's poorly developed caudal legs they hung as to a strap while with the other claw they fought among themselves as much as possible. It was a little world of malice, cannibal cruelty, and good healthy egoism that the old monster thereafter dragged about with her, and she defended it, to her praise it must be said, on every occasion against the violence and malice of the outside world, by interposing her own body. Half without will of her own, and unconsciously, she kept life in her young, Every time she required food and drew it forward under her body, the baby crayfish got a bit of it. On such occasions they let go of one another, and struck out with his free claw, and hastily transferred the morsel to his mouth. Nipper had hung to one of the outside straps, and he was with his mother on the night she went into a crayfish trap. He let go the strap in order to cram himself with both hands, and he did succeed in producing a feeling of extraordinary satiety. But when the trap was suddenly hauled up, he was not quick enough in taking hold again. The water drew him with it, and washed him out through the wide-meshed net. In this way he lost the shelter that in the natural order of things he could still have reckoned on beneath the caudal fan of his great parent. But fate had nevertheless been kind to him. 
while old Madame Nipper, boiled red like a lobster and with lettuce round her tail, lay that evening curled up on a dish. Her little Nipper was surrounded with all the wonders of life, and he went at them with greedy claws and flapping tail. It was not for nothing that he had been born with the art of going backwards. He had now lived through three winters, and was therefore not altogether lacking in experience of life. He had successfully passed the age in which his growth of no more than a few weeks made each jacket-sleeve and trouser-leg too short, and had gone through nearly a score of those dreadful metamorphoses. They were terrible bouts, real illnesses that cost both toil and suffering. The last was still fresh in his memory. He had suddenly become uneasy, could not even rest in his hole. It was the same with them all, the same unrest seized upon all the inhabitants of the crayfish town that extended over the rocky reef. None of them any longer ventured out at sunset. They remained indoors. Then the illness began with an irresistible desire to scrape and rub oneself. It was impossible to hold out against it. One had to let it go its way and follow a certain system. The system commenced with some wild movements of arms and legs. Resting on the carapace in the big claws, the hind part of the body was raised and the tail spread, and then the thighs, legs, and ankles were worked until a hole was made in the old armor-like skin and it split up lengthwise. The transformation took days, so one had to sleep now and then and rest often. Food there was none. One started up out of sleep, unable to rest for fear of being left in the old skin and dying of starvation. Nothing for it but to go on, and try to get over this most unpleasant process of molting as quickly as possible. Nipper, who was endowed with all the courage and impatience of youth, was one of the most eager to push on the business. He quickly got rid of the armor plates on his legs, and was now working to get out of his tight coat of mail, throwing himself on his back, and rubbing himself backwards and forwards upon the floor. The coat of mail has already come away from the trouser-band, and he can raise it from his body. He presses its stiff edges against a stone, while he works himself backwards out of the old crayfish case. First. He carefully releases both his stalked eyes, then come the feelers, and then the big claws. Oh, but it hurts! And he shakes and twists himself, sweating with exertion and anxiety. After all, it is going confoundedly fast. Suppose a limb got into a tangle, or a joint refused to move. Then it would break, as he very well knows. That kind of thing is a part of the crayfish system. At last the whole thing was accomplished, and he felt stronger and freer than ever. This evening he would kill. This evening he would eat his fill. The darkness grew deeper. The sinister shadows were already darkening the banks, and the deep water, which before had shone with gleaming mother-of-pearl, seemed now leaden gray. There was not a water-lily leaf to be seen on the surface. It was impossible to distinguish a single green stalk. Down on the soft mud, 
beneath a rotten, wrinkled tree stump, sat a fresh-water mussel with its shells half open. As the round feelers of the crayfish came gliding tentatively round its foot, it became aware of the approach of an enemy, and had already almost closed its broadly gaping shells, when Nipper, at the last moment, managed to introduce the end of one of his broad pincers, like the heel of a boot in a door. The mussel worked its hardest, straining till its shells creaked and splinters actually broke off in its efforts to crush the hard armor-plating of the claw. Nipper lay as though petrified in front of his victim, and let the mussel exhaust itself while he watched his opportunity to drive his unimpressionable wedge farther and farther in. He had the patience of Job, and knew that he only had to wait. It was not long before he had succeeded in making room for his other claw, and now he was cutting and picking at the body of the poor mussel, one claw holding the pearly shells sufficiently wide apart for the other to convey dainty pieces of mussel flesh to his mouth. At last the poor mussel's strength is quite exhausted. It gives up, and Nipper's head and the front part of his body disappear inside the shell. Nipper remained there the first part of the night, cramming himself, but at last could not help regretting that a mussel went such a little way. He took a short rest, and then towards morning set out confidently in search of more. Unfortunately, there were no sleepy, unprepared mussels to surprise, but behind some stones in one of the deep submarine mountain passes stood a solitary fish which had apparently got out of its course. The quiet little nipper had not much experience regarding the way in which a crayfish catches fish. He was more accustomed to snails and mussels. He could also seize a younger comrade in his claws and suck him dry, leaving nothing but his coat and trousers. But the finned animal, with fans on back, belly, and tail, the nimblest of all, how did one catch it? He slyly pushes through a crack at the bottom of the cave, raises himself on the points of his closed claws, and blinks with his diverging eyes. He has turned back his feelers so that they shall not betray him while he is investigating his immediate surroundings. Grim is standing motionless with her head towards the current, leaving her forked tail to keep her, with slight movements, on the same spot. She is tired and exhausted after her long struggle with the pearly fish, and feeling rather languid and out of sorts. Her lacerated mouth hurts every time she opens it to rinse it with fresh water. She has, therefore, sought shelter in the rocky cave to compose herself and recover. Something quivers along her breast and cautiously pricks her sides and belly. It must be a waving grass stalk. Then a gradually increasing, continuous pressure is suddenly felt round the thick part of her tail. With a sudden movement of her body she tries to shake off the supposed reed, but at the same moment the pressure is felt like a bite from the hard, sharp-edged beak of a heron. She struggles and writhes, and warps herself out of the cave. 
and now she flies, fing-winged, through the water. Nipper is hanging to her stern. He has only hold with one claw, but hopes to get the other, which he is waving about, also applied. His tail-fan works incessantly. Grim drags at full speed over stock and stone, and swings him out of one gyration into another, through reed-beds and undergrowth, and far, far into the forest of water-weed. But he hangs on still. He feels, however, that his prize is rather more than he can manage. There is no time left for him to pick at the fish's flesh with his other claw. He was growing quite dizzy, for he was not accustomed to going forward at such a pace. Then he stretches out his free claw to seize hold of a root, and thus try to chain his captive to the bottom. But the trick does not succeed. The jerk that follows is so violent that he loses his claw. He has now lost his chance, and lets go. Grim, feeling herself relieved of his weight and free in her movements, darts away with the speed of a runaway engine. In addition to the soreness of her mouth, she now has a pain in her tail. She will need some time to recover from both. Things had gone against her, and to tell the truth, she did not think there was much fun in being a fish. But then she had to learn her lesson, and once bitten, twice shy, both in and above the water. The recollection of the strange little pearly fish long remained in her memory. Its stiff body, and continual turning about its own dorsal fin, without a single stroke of the tail, were long imprinted on her mind, and whenever afterwards the titbit appeared, her wounded mouth assured her voracious stomach that it was wiser to refrain. End of chapter 5 Recording by Rebecca Shertuti